0: Welcome to AUSA's Army Matters podcast. This is Thought Leaders with Joe Craig. My guest today is James Kidfield, the author of In the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. James Kidfield is a contributing editor and former senior national security correspondent for the Atlantic Media Company and the National Journal. Mr. Kidfield's articles on defense, national security, intelligence, and foreign policy issues appeared in such outlets as the New York Times, the Washington Post, Breaking Defense, Army Times, and Stars and Stripes. He's the only three-time winner of the prestigious Gerald R. Ford Award for distinguished reporting on national defense. Most recently for his first-hand reporting on the Afghan War. In addition to In the Company of Heroes, Mr. Kidfield is the author of three other books. Most recently, Twilight Warriors, the Soldier, Spies, and Special Agents who are revolutionizing the American way of war. Mr. Kidfield, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be with you, Joe. As we mentioned in the bio here, you've written extensively on military issues. What was it that inspired you to focus on the story of post-9-11 Medal of Honor recipients?
1: As you mentioned, I covered these wars and the run-up to them pretty extensively, but always from sort of a strategic 30,000-foot level where I would talk to the decision makers and the generals about what they're trying to accomplish and how well they did. But when I was in these war zones, I was just always totally impressed by the young men and women who really are at the front lines and the tip of the spear. And at some point I wanted to write about them. And I got my first opportunity a couple of years ago when the Department of the Navy reached out, offered me an exclusive interview with a Navy SEAL named Britt Slavinsky, who had just won the Medal of Honor. And I found his story so heart-wrenching, tragic, dramatic, but in the end, inspiring, that I wanted to tell more of these stories. You could sense a couple of years ago that these wars were winding down and the country was looking elsewhere. And I wanted to, as a coda, basically tell these stories because they're just amazing. And they're indicative not only of these Medal of Honor winners, but the units they were in and the hard battles that they found themselves in and fought, and then just incredible valor and bravery displayed by everyone, but especially by these Medal of Honor recipients who as one general refers to them, the bravest of the brave.
0: For our listeners, I was wondering if you could just start with a little background. Tell us a little bit about the history of the Medal of Honor and what's involved with the process for selecting who's recognized.
1: So the Medal of Honor was implemented by President Lincoln during the Civil War. It was initially only for non-commissioned officers and not for officers. They changed that in 1863. And the first to get it was Chamberlain, who led the defense of Little Round Top during the Battle of Gettysburg. So the medal itself... The process is the person who recommends someone for the Medal of Honor is their direct commander who is involved in the battle, and they've witnessed this heroic action above and beyond the call of duty, as the Medal says in its wording. There's an investigation by the Defense Department to categorize and research and get the data on the battle. And then it just goes up the chain of command, it has to be recommended by the Secretary of Defense, and eventually to the White House. And the end choice is the President of the United States makes these determinations whether they deserve this medal or not.
0: Well, focusing specifically on the book and post 9-11 recipients, one of the things that makes the writing so special is your personal connection that you have, interviewing recipients and their families. How difficult was it for them to recount these experiences?
1: You know, it is difficult. I think the comment was made to me a couple of times that even though it's a great honor, it's a weighty burden to carry a Medal of Honor because it reminds these recipients of the worst day of their lives, almost without exception that day includes losing friends and comrades in battle and just some really horrific battles. So it's difficult for them to talk about it. Some were willing to talk to me directly. Some were not. I talked to a number of Gold Star families of Medal of Honor recipients who received it posthumously. Their courage in just trying to put their lives back together after losing a cherished loved one was also something that stood out to me. But they wanted their loved ones to be remembered, obviously. So they were willing to talk to me about the recipients. So... It's a weighty burden for these guys, but I think they carry it because they want to bring attention and to highlight the bravery of their entire units, and especially those that didn't make it home.
0: There's a common theme where you hear so many of the recipients talk about doing their job, basically, as they see it. They're just doing what they did to protect their fellow soldiers.
1: Absolutely. And you touch on something that's interesting, which is the humility displayed by these soldiers. I mean, you constantly do hear that. I was just doing my job. I was doing what was expected of me. But what they were doing was well above and beyond the call of duty, and that's why they were singled out.
0: Now, in the book, you focus on the stories of the 25 recipients that have been awarded the Medal of Honor since 9-11. One thing that's interesting, it seems that you know, there's far more awards have been given for actions in Afghanistan than Iraq. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, because Afghanistan, especially in its later stages, was a war of dismounted infantry. So... A lot of those battles, when we had this mountain campaign where we put units in the Hindu Kush, very remote areas, and they had a lot of really, really tough battles, just eye to eye with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Iraq, a lot of the casualties and battles we took there were the result of improvised explosive devices against soldiers and Marines who were in armored vehicles, etc. There wasn't as much eye-to-eye combat. There was some, I mean, there was clearly some, and some of these recipients are from battles in Iraq, but not nearly as many as Afghanistan. Afghanistan, like I said, was a war of dismounted infantry, and that produces a lot of sort of eye-to-eye engagements to include hand-to-hand combat, as did in some cases Iraq. One of the Medal of Honor recipients, David Bolavia, won for the Battle of Fallujah when he actually went into a house that he knew had just been ambushed inside this house during the Battle of Fallujah and had to retreat laid down covering fire for his unit to retreat, and then single-handedly went back in to take out the Al-Qaeda fighters in that house and ended up taking the last one out in hand-hand combat. So there are harrowing stories from both wars, but the reason there's more from Afghanistan is because it was a war of dismounted infantry.
0: And one of the battles that you described up in the mountains of Afghanistan and was that at combat outpost Keating, where Staff Sergeant Misha and Specialist Ty Carter were both awarded. And at that point, it was you know, the first time in nearly 50 years that two people were recognized from the same battle. But since then, there's been three other cases that you cover in the book of, a, of double awards. So what, what do you think is behind that trend?
1: Well, at one point, and in keating is an interesting battle because it was kind of the culmination of this mountain campaign that I was referring to where we tried to extend the writ of the Afghan government into the remote Hindu Kush in these valleys that had, in many cases, never seen a foreign fighter before and in many cases didn't even know the the tribe and valley next door, to try to plug infiltration routes from the sanctuaries in Pakistan. And a lot of these units were just isolated and remote in these fishbowls with mountains all around them. It was a terrible tactical situation for them. Cop was almost overrun. There were enemy fighters well within the wire fighting. After that, we basically pulled all our units out of the mountains, which was probably a belated decision that there's just indefensible positions we were putting these people in. But the reason I think they had two people from the same battle in a couple of cases was the Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, came in. He had fought in Afghanistan. He had fought in Iraq. As Secretary of Defense, he said he thought we'd been too reluctant to honor the bravery that he had seen himself and that a lot of his cohorts in the Marine Corps were telling him existence. So he asked the services to go back and have a look at these battles and see if perhaps we should elevate some of the medals to the penultimate medal, the Medal of Honor. And so... There was a look back from all the services, and I think that resulted in some of these guys actually getting a well-deserved Medal of Honor.
0: Well, one thing that really struck me in the various stories they tell is the number of soldiers who use their own bodies to shield others from grenades or suicide vests. When you spoke to some of the survivors, how do they explain that sacrifice?
1: It's a decision, I think, you make it in the moment, but I think if you listen or read about the biographies of these people... Their sort of belief in selfless sacrifice and the way they inculcate the culture of having your brother's back. That everything in their life is leading to that moment, brush with eternity, I call it. And in that moment, they just can't imagine letting their brothers in arms die. So they sacrifice themselves. And there's a handful of cases like that. It's just extraordinary. It gets to one of the common themes of the book, which is the selflessness. If I had to say one characteristic that these guys all exhibited. It's a selflessness. When it comes down to the toughest decisions, they sacrifice themselves and their own lives to save others. In the end, that's a very inspiring story.
0: For this sacrifice, the selflessness that you're talking about, could there be a connection to the fact that it's an all-volunteer army, in contrast to Vietnam, or World War II, and other earlier conflicts?
1: I think there are Medal of Honor winners who display that from all of our wars, so I don't think it's something unique to the all-volunteer army. What is kind of unique to the all-volunteer army is that after 9-11, many of these people volunteered knowing they would go into combat and knowing that combat is one of the worst things anyone experiences. So there's a nobility to the willingness to volunteer, knowing what you're going to be put through because you felt your country was attacked on 9-11, because you felt your country needed defending. And I find that very ennobling about the all-volunteer military. I can tell you from writing about it extensively in my earlier books that the architects of the All-Volunteer Army would never have imagined that we would send it to war for two decades without reinforcing it with a draft. And that had some serious repercussions because we had to send these guys back in deployment after deployment. And that's tough on families. That's tough on your psyche. There are studies that showed post-traumatic stress, the likelihood of it increases the more deployments you go back. So there were a lot of repercussions to sending the 1% to fight these long wars but the military wouldn't have it any other way because they love the competency of a professional army. We have a very, very good service, a very good military. And it's because it's full of professionals who want to be there. The military leadership would never go back if they had their choice and the politicians don't want to go back because it would be very controversial to reinstate the draft. So consequences on both sides of the coin on that. But there is something very ennobling about someone willing to volunteer to go through with these guys and women go through.
0: As you say, these people who are fighting for 20 years almost in Afghanistan, a very long time also in Iraq. What lessons do the Medal of Honor recipients give us reflection upon the experience?
1: You hear a lot of comments from people thinking, you know, the new generation, the millennials, or the generation Z or X are softer or don't have the values that earlier generations had. And it's just not true. These guys come from every kind of community in this country you can name from big cities in the Northeast to villages and towns in the South and in the Mountain West to everything in between. Those communities produce these really extraordinary individuals, and it's not just the Medal of Honor winners. You can see the valor in all of these units that are surrounding these Medal of Honor winners and people who have their back. I refer to them, uh, as one general put it to me, as America's new greatest generation. And I very much believe that, and I think if you read these stories, you'll believe it too. This generation's values of self-sacrifice are as strong as any we've ever had.
0: Now, I don't know if you would label any of them as your favorites, but were there any stories among these 25 that you found particularly striking? You know, they're all so
1: striking. It's hard to pick one. I mean, I thought that original one with Britt Slabinski was really Homeric, the tale of what happened to them. They were a SEAL team with an attached Air Force air liaison, and they were sent up on the top of a mountain to do overwatch for a big operation, Operation Anaconda. And because of a screw-up, they had to get let down right at the top of the mountain as opposed to egress from a safe distance where they could go in secretly. And they landed right on top of an Al-Qaeda force of fighters. A helicopter is shot up in the commotion trying to get out of there. One of the SEALs falls outside of the helicopter. They crash land. They get back to their base. And they have to make a decision. And it comes down to Britt Slabinski. He has to make a decision. Do I go back up and try to retrieve my fallen comrade? knowing that there's a force of Al Qaeda up there bigger than his force on a snowy mountainside who were waiting to ambush them again. And he decides to go back up. And when he tells his team that, not one person questions the decision. SAP so me was just an amazing decision point. And you see that in a lot of these stories where they have a point where they could do the easy thing or the safe thing and they choose to do the hard thing and the dangerous thing to retrieve or to save a comrade. And indeed when they went back up, they were decimated, you know, John Chapman, who's the Air Force Liaison is shot, presumed dead. Another one of the SEALs is shot and loses his leg. They have to retreat. The quick reaction force comes in. Its helicopter gets shot down and losing a number of people in the quick reaction force. And it turns out that John Chapman was not dead, but just knocked out. He comes alive and is up there by himself, surrounded by Al Qaeda, and he fights heroically for the next 15 minutes, eventually sacrificing himself to lay down cover for the quick reaction force helicopter. So that was one of the cases where he had two Medal of Honor winners, John Chapman and Britt Slavinsky.
0: And that one tale is just
1: an amazing story.
0: Absolutely. And one of the things is with the case of Slavinsky and Chapman, it shows it's never too late to go back and recognize their actions in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I was wondering, you know, to, to kind of take us out, could you explain briefly the whole process that's involved in upgrading awards? And then finally, who do you think? Do you have any suggestions for others who ultimately...
1: You know, I don't have visibility. I commend Secretary Mattis for asking the service to go back and look at these. And what they did is they went back and looked at lesser medals. The medal below the Medal of Honor is the Distinguished Service Cross. So they looked at recipients of the Distinguished Service Cross to see if that might actually be worthy of a Medal of Honor. And indeed, they found, and I agree, that there were a number that were like that. I had actually written a story for Air Force Magazine about John Chapman when he received the Distinguished Service Cross evidence came out after that from the drones and from other places where they realized with certainty that he had reawakened and fought heroically wounded seven times before he was eventually killed he used up all his ammunition so that was in a case where if you hadn't gone back and taken a second look with new evidence you might have missed something and i think that was really important for them to do I
0: appreciate your insights on that and i just want to thank you uh, james kidfield for being our guest today his new book, again, is In the Company of Heroes, the Inspiring Stories of Medal of Honor Recipients of America's Longest Wars, in Afghanistan and Iraq. So again, thanks James for our guest.
1: Great to be with you and thanks for having me on.
0: And to all our listeners, thanks for joining. Keep it locked here for all Army matters for next week's episode. Have a great Army day. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Army Matters Podcast on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. The Army Matters Podcast series is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's Professional Association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission to educate, inform, and connect with the total Army, our industry partners, and our supporters of a strong national defense. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at ausa.org. Have a great Army day. Hua.